Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, multiple attempts to evacuate Ukrainians from small eastern cities have failed as Russian forces continue to shell routes despite promises of limited ceasefires. The situation grows more desperate as residents there are without electricity, heat and water and as the number of civilian deaths grows. In a matter of days, Russian President Vladimir Putin's assault has tragically upended life in Ukraine and changed a world order that's persisted for more than seven decades. This hour, we wrap our minds around the global realignment and talk with those on the ground in Ukraine. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. When former ambassador to Ukraine Stephen Pfeiffer joined us over two weeks ago before the war to talk about the prospect of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, he said Putin is underestimating the willingness of civilian Ukrainians to fight. I, I'm not sure the Russians or that the Kremlin understands just how much animosity there is in Ukraine, not towards Russian people, but towards the Russian government. And if they were to go into Ukraine, they would have to deal not only with the Ukrainian military, but I do believe that they would find themselves engaged in a significant guerrilla campaign. Pfeiffer's prediction has proven true. As Ukrainians continue to mount a fierce resistance against Russian forces, he'll join us to talk about the impact now of the invasion. First, though, we turn to the latest developments on the ground in Ukraine. And for that, we're joined by Richard Ensor, Ukraine correspondent for The Economist, who is in Ukraine's western city of Lviv. Richard, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Mina. So Ukrainians in the East, as the latest news is telling us, they've struggled to leave because Russian forces haven't been honoring temporary and limited ceasefires. And today, Moscow announced yet another limited ceasefire so civilians can leave. But this time, the evacuation corridors lead to Russia or or Belarus. And of course, that's a non-starter for Ukrainians. Can you first just give us a sense of what the negotiations have been like and, and where things go from here? Yes, it's it's a real, uh, it's very vexing, this, this topic. And unfortunately, it's no surprise for those of us who've been looking at uh, these ceasefire negotiations in other conflicts, for example, in Syria, where Russian bombs also hit humanitarian corridors. Um, you know, people who want to flee, they want to flee to sanctuary. And for many Ukrainians, Russian territory is not sanctuary. People want to be streaming across to the EU borders. We've heard that already 1.7 million people have headed across into these mm. territories and many more are going to come. 
Um, in cities like Mariupol and Mykolaiv in the south of Ukraine, in Sumy in the northeast, people are really feeling besieged. There are not enough uh, supplies of food and medicine getting in. Water and electricity is intermittent at best. Uh, these are humanitarian catastrophes waiting to happen. And uh, you know, it would be extremely welcome if we could see some progress on some kind of humanitarian corridor. But there are a yeah. lot of cynics looking and and not really holding their breath. Yes, it's an increasingly desperate situation. Right now, Kherson in the south, as I understand, is the largest city and the only regional capital that has completely fallen to the Russians. You wrote about the fall. What are the people now living under Russian occupation experiencing? That's right. This was the first really big piece of territory or, or town that the Russian troops were able to control for some time. And it's it's hard to know what word to use when you look at the videos coming out of Kherson. Occupation, control. It doesn't look like control when you look at the streets and you see some of the protests and demonstrations taking place and participated in by Ukrainian residents. One particularly striking video saw a Russian tank going down the street with a man on top of it waving the Ukrainian flag as hundreds of residents cheered him on. That's the kind of people power that Russia is facing in the south. And as they move further away from Russian territory, from Russian borders, towards the north and towards the east, that territory is only going to get more hostile. So Kherson, the fact, the, the inability of them to lay down any kind of functional parallel government or to maintain order in the streets, despite some very horrifying reports of, uh, of troop behavior down there, um, bodes really well, um, bodes really poorly for the prospects of an ongoing Russian occupation or indeed any kind of long-term victory from Russia in this war at all. So then in places or in areas closer to Kiev or Kharkiv, where the Russians are facing a great deal of resistance. You have described, and I think you alluded to it just a moment ago, tactics that are quite, uh, I think you've called them, you've called these tactics that Russians have resorted to sort of brutal um, barbarism. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I can. Um, you know, we, we, are, we are seeing what Russia what they call high precision strikes in urban areas. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of precision when you see the civilian death tolls that mount, the, the videos of um, which are really, frankly, horrible to watch of people lining up outside shops who find themselves covered in blood, missing legs. Uh, these, these are what you could, you know, the best word you can find for it is indiscriminate, a sort of indifference as for whether there is a civilian death toll to missiles uh, fired. Speaking to Ukrainian officials, you often hear that the, the target of many missile attacks, that they are not, there is no military meaning for some of these. It's not a person who lives next to a munitions factory or a tank factory. Sometimes it is, but very often there doesn't seem to be any military logic to where the missiles fall. And many analysts are coming to the conclusion that the, the Russian government, in fact, wants to sow terror and they want to use a city like Kharkiv in the east um, to create so much destruction there as a kind of punitive lesson for the rest of the country to induce a surrender. But as um, Ambassador Pfeiffer was saying in, in the audio you played, that kind of surrender is not forthcoming because there is a great amount of determination among the Ukrainian people to hold on to what they've got, their statehood and their freedoms.
We're talking with Richard Ensor, Ukraine correspondent for The Economist. Richard, you are based in Lviv right now, if I'm saying that correctly, about 50 miles from the Polish border. And not only are the people not willing to leave, but the, the government is not willing to leave. You've called Lviv potentially a second site should should Kiev fall. Can you explain what you mean by that and why there? Yeah, of course. Um, so in Lviv, where I am, I'm... Like a lot of Ukrainians, I was living in the capital of Kiev until the invasion struck, and I've come out here to uh, to get a look at some of the events that are taking place on the border here. This is a city where millions of Ukrainians are currently passing through. This is the, the road to Poland runs through this city. A lot of people who want to go to Poland are coming through Lviv. A lot of people who want safety but don't necessarily want to leave Ukraine are finding a, a a new life or a backup life here in Lviv or somewhere in the west of Ukraine. This is a place where it's a little bit further away from the war right now. It's further away from Russian troops and the Russian border. Um, and it's a it's a place that uh, is home to a, a fierce anti-Russian sentiment um, because this is a this is a place that it, it wasn't for many centuries and decades it was more plugged into europe um, people called this the, the the window ukraine's window to europe it used to be run by the austrian empire the polish lithuanian empire the, these are these are the kinds of historical links that lviv has so um, just one example of the the fascinating diversity that, that you can find all across ukraine um, but it has also been speculated that if the the worst were to happen and the government were to fall in kiev the ukrainian government would want to live on in exile somewhere that could be abroad or it could still be in ukrainian territory and lviv wouldn't be a bad place for it what is it like what is daily life like there right now while it's it's in the western part of the country. It has not sort of been untouched by this war. Not at all. You can feel just walking down the streets. You know, this is not a city that is inside a country at peace. That you can feel the war when you walk around. Um, that's when you speak to locals who are you know, experiencing long lines at ATMs, pharmacies. Uh, supermarket shelves that are that are thinning out with so many people buying supplies. You can feel the chaos at the train station of people either trying to welcome relatives or strangers, volunteers making soup or singing carols for the, the recent arrivals, people frantically trying to get on one of the trains out of Ukraine over towards NATO territory, EU territory, safety. A lot of emotions running really high here. Um, and this is actually a feeling that incredibly reaches another crescendo, another scale with every passing day. This is not a, a migration crisis that is a refugee crisis that is on the way. It is just going going constantly. The flow of people is continuing. Um, and this city is living through days that, unlike which, it, you know, it, I don't think it's ever seen before. You've also written about just the incredible geopolitical shifts that have happened in less than two weeks since this invasion started. You've written about how it's triggered the breaking of old pacifist taboos. And I want to understand what you mean by that. What stands out to you in terms of that breakage? Yes, for sure. I mean, so many countries in Europe, they they really wanted to... Um, be places of peace or places that did not send weapons to conflict zones. This was a policy, for example, of Germany for a long time. Um, and 
lots of old rules have just gone out the window because people are constantly reformulating what it means to be for peace in 2022. You know, it used to be that if you are sending weapons somewhere, this is, this, you know, that makes you the bad guy. But looking at a war of aggression, like uh, like what we've seen from Vladimir Putin's Russia this year, and looking at the the determination and heroism of Ukrainian people, having that heroism reach its potential with weapons that they can actually use properly to shoot down planes, which they don't manufacture themselves, which they need to get from somewhere. This has changed the calculus for countries like Germany, for countries like Finland. Um, you know, the, the, the United States, of course, is sending a lot more than it used to. Um, and the reason they're doing this is because they they see that Ukraine matters, that Ukraine is a, a country that deserves a chance to defend itself against Russia. Um, and uh, really, really looking on, you you see these, uh, it's precisely what you say, it's a pacifist taboos turning to dust. One of the main routes for getting those weapons that Germany is now sending in other places and and other kinds of aid is the Polish-Ukrainian border. It's also where women and children are fleeing Ukraine. How precarious is the situation on the border there with all of that activity? And how much are people aware of or concerned about Russia, knowing that, that it's a very important route? You're absolutely right. Um, you know, the, the same border through which millions of refugees, women and children are crossing right now, you've got these weapons and useful supplies, body armor, night vision coming right over the border in the opposite direction. Now, Russia doesn't like that. They view that as an act of hostility towards Russia. If they, if they start to consider this to be an act of war, if the weapons get a little bit stronger, if instead of sending missiles, people start to send planes, then there is a risk that Russia turns around and says, well, we think that this is a fair target for a, for a missile or for a bomb. And that means that the war would come to the west um, of Ukraine, but potentially come to the west itself. Um, if, if, uh, you're bombing the border, right on, if you're bombing the if you're bombing somewhere that is right on the border of a NATO country, very, very difficult. Richard Enser of The Economist. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the latest developments on the ground in Ukraine with Richard Ensor, a Ukraine correspondent based in Lviv for The Economist. And Richard, we were interrupted there just by the break, but you were talking about how Russia could view the West. Before you go, and I know you need to leave us, of course, how do you read the immediate Russian strategy at this point based on your vantage point in Lviv? I mean, you know, they love to say about war, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. And that is never more true than now, because I think 
a lot of the assumptions that Russia had about this war. I think they believed a lot of their own propaganda that they would be viewed as liberators in Ukraine. The opposite of that is true. It's, you know, everyone in the country views them as an enemy, just about. Um, and that means that strategies are being rewritten right now. Previously unthinkable options are now on the table, both in terms of escalation, but in terms of also trying to find the way out of what is fast becoming a quagmire for them. So we're really in a fluid situation right now where anything is possible, but nothing looks particularly likely. Well, Richard Ansar, thank you again for joining us. Thank you. And do stay safe. Joining us now is... Stephen Pfeiffer, a William Perry Fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford, also former ambassador to Ukraine. Ambassador Pfeiffer, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. And just as Richard was saying something very similar to what you were saying, the observations that you made a couple of weeks ago about how the um, the invasion has brought a fierce resistance from from Ukraine, and that Russia may have underestimated the substantial opposition that it would face. I'm curious if even you estimated this level of Ukrainian resistance. Uh, I mean, I heard from Ukrainians when I was there in Kiev at the end of January that they they would resist. Uh, but I think uh, the level of resistance is, is impressed a lot of us. Um, part of it was a result of mistakes by the Russians. Uh, they underestimated that resistance. Uh, they originally sent relatively small units towards Kyiv, and uh, the Ukrainians repulsed those. And now the Russians are trying to figure out uh, what they do about Kyiv. We talked when Russia was amassing troops on its Ukraine border and, and in Belarus as well. And so I, I guess I just do have to ask you how you've been processing these last couple of weeks and how you would frame what's happening right now. Well, I think it became when the when the conflict be, or when the invasion began, there were two options for the Russians. One was to try to encircle Ukrainian forces that were near Donbas, and that would have been consistent with what uh, Putin said when he talked about the idea of making the so-called uh, breakaway republics, the so-called people's republics, safe. Uh, but it very quickly became clear that, in fact, uh, he had much higher ambitions with the assault on Kyiv, with the fact that when Russian forces came out of Crimea, they turned in not just towards the east, but they turned towards the west. And so I believe we are seeing a Russian effort really to capture, if not all of Ukraine, they, they have not yet launched ground operations into the western third of the country, but to uh, occupy a good chunk of the country. Uh, and it's proving a tragedy for Ukrainians. It's hard to watch places that uh, I knew uh, being bombed. I imagine. So um, you also said the last time we talked that Russia has an overwhelming air advantage, um, an aerial advantage. And is it your sense that, that Russia will deploy these forces to the fullest extent then and that it has not yet chosen to do so? This has been one of the mysteries, I think, that puzzles a lot of the people smarter than me about the military side of this conflict, is that the Russians had a much larger air force than the Ukrainians, but they don't seem to be using it as much as they could have. And so here we are now, uh, 12 days into, into the war, uh, or into this new invasion, and the Ukrainian air force still is operating. 
And that would have surprised pretty much everybody two weeks ago. And it's a mystery why the, the Russians have not used their air force and their air power more effectively. Uh, but the Ukrainians are also having quite a bit of success with uh, Stinger missiles and other manned portable air defense systems in bringing down low-flying Russian aircraft and helicopters. Can Ukraine, though, prevail in a ground war, given the military support that it's getting from other countries? This is the really big question. Uh, on the Russian side, you have the advantage of, of mass and numbers and much more modern military equipment. On the Ukrainian side, you have determination, courage, and skill with their, with, uh, their defensive forces. And so at the end of the day, the Russians may prevail, but I would say right now it's a question of if. It's not yet a question of when. We're talking with Stephen Pfeiffer, former ambassador to Ukraine and a senior director of the National Security Council in the Clinton administration. He's William Perry Fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What are you wondering about this war? What do you want to better understand? Are you struggling to wrap your mind around just how much the world has changed in the last couple of weeks, as so many of us are? You can share your thoughts and questions at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. And you can email us at forum at kqed.org. I do want to ask you about just how much the world has changed. If you could just help us wrap our minds around that, what have been some of the biggest surprises in terms of the way that uh, large democracies have basically responded to this and, and who stands out to you? Uh, the response of the West has been unified. My guess is that the Kremlin has been surprised, perhaps even shocked by the strength of the response. So you now have not only the United States, but Germany, Britain, France, uh, the Netherlands are sending forces to bolster NATO's eastern flank. Whereas a month and a half ago, there were perhaps the United States and maybe four European countries supplying Ukraine with defensive uh, assistance, including things like anti-armor weapons. There are now more than 20 countries providing stuff to Ukraine. It includes Finland. It includes Sweden. It includes Japan. Uh, and I think perhaps the biggest shift is Germany. For five decades, Germany cultivated this relationship with Russia, and we saw in one week the German government killed the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia, yes. agreed to cut Russian banks off from the SWIFT international transfer system, reversed a longstanding policy of not selling or transferring weapons to conflict zones, specifically so that they could transfer anti-air weapons and anti-armor weapons to Ukraine. And then uh, a week ago yesterday, the German chancellor said, look, uh, the NATO goal is 2% of defense spending. At the, at the moment, you, Russia was at, or Germany was about 1.5%, but 2% of gross domestic product. Uh, and it was, Germany was not on track to hit that goal until 2030, even though the goal was 2024. Chancellor Schultz said, we will hit that goal this year. We're going to 2%. That means a 30% increase in German defense spending over last year. And then he said, we're going to put in an additional 100 billion euros of defense. That's like adding two years of the 2021 German defense budget. Uh, so in one week, we've seen Germany really sweep away 
five decades of German policy towards Russia. I know it's been incredibly breathtaking. I, I wonder um, how long you think this kind of resolve will last and what would challenge it? Yeah, this is a really good question. The Ukrainians have held out, I believe, far more or far longer than the Russians expected. Uh, those of us in the West anticipated that, in fact, the Ukrainians would resist for quite some time. And even if the Russians achieve their game, gain or their goal, even if the Russians should defeat the Ukrainian military and occupy Kiev, uh, I'm not sure that's a real victory for them because if they want to put in place in Kiev a pro-Russian government, that government can't stand longer than two minutes if the Russian military leaves. So even in the case where the Russians achieve what appears to be their objective, they're going to have to occupy a large chunk of Ukraine with a substantial force, and they're going to have to deal with a population that is angry, hostile, and in many cases armed. So this resistance, I think, would continue even if the Russian military defeats the Ukrainian military. It's just going to take on a different form. Yes, but what will NATO and EU's sort of posture or position toward Russia be then? Yeah. yeah. My guess is that NATO and the United States will still be looking at ways to get weapons to the Ukrainians. Uh, there's a long border between Ukraine and Poland, Romania, Hungary, and Slovakia. So there are ways to, to move weapons over land. And my guess is that to, as long as there's a Ukrainian resistance, uh, there will be countries in the West that will be prepared to provide uh, weapons so that resistance can continue. So how would you describe what that would mean for basically the, the world order? Is this... People have described this as a new era, as another or the next, you know, iteration of the Cold War. How would you say what yeah. we're in right now, this reality yeah. that, that we're living? I'm not sure the Cold War is the best description, because remember the Cold War, it was between the United States and NATO on the one side and the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact on the other side. Russia is not the, war, is not the Soviet Union and every member, uh, virtually every member of the Warsaw Pact now belongs to NATO. Uh, there's no real ideological component to this struggle. So it, it's certainly a cold period, but it's not going to be on the scale of the Cold War. Bear in mind that the United States and Europe together have uh, economic potential that's probably close to 20 times the size of Russia's. Uh, so it's going to be a struggle. And I think the real end that you're seeing, though, is a recognition in Europe and in the United States, that in Russia, we're dealing with a country that is trying to challenge the rules, but trying to subjugate an independent state. And Ukrainians, I believe, are resisting because they see this is really an existential challenge for them. It means, losing means the end of democracy in Ukraine, and it means the end of their vision for Ukraine, which is that of becoming a normal European state. We're talking with Stephen Pfeiffer, a fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford and a former ambassador to Ukraine. And you, our listeners, are weighing in. Stephen writes, I am very much an anti-war person, but I am persuaded right now that NATO should be establishing a no-fly zone. Of course, this is what uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has asked for. 
Do you see any circumstances under which NATO would do this? Uh, no. Uh, bear in mind, too, that the bulk of the Ukrainian civilians who are being killed are not being killed by Russian air power. They're being killed by Russian artillery, mortars, and surface-to-surface missiles. So the no-fly zone doesn't go a long way to protecting civilians. But the United States, um, President Biden, and NATO have made clear, really from the beginning, and even before that, that they were not prepared to go to war with Russia over Ukraine, that they were not prepared to send the U.S. military or the NATO military forces into Ukraine to defend Ukraine. Uh, They were prepared to supply weapons and help the Ukrainians in other ways, but there was that line. The problem with the no-fly zone is to do the no-fly zone right, NATO NATO would have to be prepared to shoot down Russian airplanes in the no-fly zone and also to attack Russian air defenses in Belarus, in Russia proper. Uh, Because the first Russian challenge to a no-fly zone would not be uh, a MiG or a Sukhoi fighter flying in to tackle the NATO aircraft, it would be an S-400 surface air missile launched at a NATO aircraft. And so you have to ask yourself at that point, if you're not only shooting down Russian planes, but bombing air defense sites, not just with the Russian military in Ukraine, but also in Belarus and in Russia proper, you're pretty close to an all-out shooting war with, uh, with Russia. And NATO leaders have been pretty clear they're not prepared to do that. Well, Leona tweets, years ago, a friend once said she was Russian, but her daughter was Ukrainian, as if to ensure I understood the difference. Now I wonder what is happening to other families who are similar. Maurice writes, Putin must be weakened from all angles, and I feel that the one angle that is being ignored is to weaken him from within his own borders. Not an easy task with state-run media, but certainly in this age of technology and social media, we can find ways to communicate to the citizens of Russia the true intent of Putin and his cronies. Any reaction to what Maurice is saying here in terms of trying yeah. to get real information in? Yeah. I, th- I think that's important. I mean, and what the Kremlin has done in the last week is it's really clamped down on independent media. So, for example, uh, independent media outlets were shut down because they called the Russian military action an invasion or a war as opposed to the approved term, which is a special military operation. Uh, but Russians are beginning to notice, I'm sure, that things are happening. The economic sanctions that were slapped on uh, a week ago are really severe. So, for example, the ruble on Friday, I guess it would have been the 25th of February. So 10 days ago, the ruble was trading at 84 rubles to the dollar. Today, it's at 150 to the dollar. And that means that Russians who have ruble bank accounts have seen their savings, you know, 50% of it just disappeared. Uh, the isolation factor, Aeroflot, the Russian airline announced on Saturday, it will fly, make no international flights except to Belarus. Uh, and the Russian people are now beginning to get notices of, you know, family members who were killed in Ukraine. The thing I believe that the West should be looking for is with the Russian government having really slapped on tight control of the official media channels, are there ways using things like social media where the West can communicate to Russians, this is what your army is doing in your name in Ukraine and get some of the images and get some of the pictures and make them understand exactly what's being done there. Now, I don't know that the Russian people have the ability to change Kremlin policy. 
but the Kremlin has been for a an autocratic system where you were with security services that can keep a tight control on the population has been pretty sensitive to Russian public opinion in the past. And I do wonder what the Kremlin is going to do if they begin to see that the combination of the severe economic pain that sanctions are inflicting on Russians and the fact that significant numbers of Russian soldiers are dying in Ukraine, how that affects the Russian public opinion. We'll have to see. Well, let me go to caller Robert in Ventura. Hi, Robert. Oh, hi. Uh, good morning, ma'am. Uh, my question is, is uh, uh, how does uh, George W. Bush's uh, war of aggression in Iraq uh, affect our credibility? And uh, does it, does it, uh, uh, has it set a, a, a tone or a climate where uh, Putin might have been uh, emboldened uh, to go into Ukraine? Robert, thanks. Hey, thank you. Ambassador Pfeiffer? Yeah, yeah, certainly there's a certain amount of whataboutism in Russia where the Russians are trying to justify this. Well, look what you Americans did in Iraq. And actually, in that sense, I would agree. I think Iraq was a as a war of choice uh, for the United States. Uh, and it was uh, turned out to be, I think, a tragedy for us. But having said that, you know, what the Russians are doing, how to Ukraine uh, is really not justified by whatever wrongs the United States may have committed back in 2003 in Iraq. And, I think we're, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Ambassador Piper. And, and I think what you're seeing here, I mean, it's, it's really driven by one man's perception, and that's Vladimir Putin's, this desire to sort of bring Ukraine back into Moscow's orbit. Uh, somebody who, based on this long essay he wrote last summer, but the speech he gave uh, two weeks ago today on, Febu uh, on February 21st, which was really his declaration of war on Ukraine, does not accept the right for Ukraine to exist as a sovereign and independent state. We're looking at how the world is realigning in response to the war in Ukraine with Stephen Pfeiffer, ambassador, former ambassador to Ukraine. And we'll have more with you, our listeners, after the break. This is Forum. And I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the latest developments on the ground in Ukraine and the world's response. And joining me now is Galina Maestruk, a gynecologist, oncologist, and women's rights activist working in Ukraine. Galina, really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Me too. I, I understand that you are also in Lviv. Your husband is in Kiev. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be? Uh, 
he's he was on duty and he's still in the hospital all these days. He's a doctor. When there. the war started, yeah. When the war started, he was on duty, and uh, a lot of medical personnel is still working in in hospitals because Kiev is is living. Uh, I I can't say normal life, but uh, it's living, you know. And uh, people try to uh, provide all the services which are available uh, oh. to women, first of all, yeah. Yeah, and what are things like for you in Lviv? So a couple of questions there. You, you mentioned that they are trying to provide services, medical services in Kiev. And then I believe you are also trying to do almost similar things, not to that same degree, but trying to help people who are coming through who have needs in Lviv. Uh, you know, now it's a period of very difficult people, uh, very dif difficult period because... Lviv area is very good uh, uh, covered by services. Uh, the another story is a lot of uh, IDPs. It's internally displaced people who are coming here. And the request for services became more bigger. And uh... Galina, I think we may have, have lost you there. We'll try to reestablish that connection as we um, want to get a better understanding of what's on the ground while at the same time getting a better picture of what's happening more broadly. In the meantime, Ambassador Stephen Piper is with us, and so are you, our listeners. Let me go to some more of your calls. Luke in San Jose. Hi, Luke. Hi, yes. Um, I'm a little bit concerned about the private sector sanctions that are targeting everyday Russians and that that may backfire to some extent and make the uh, Kremlin propaganda, you know, this isn't just about Putin, but NATO hates you individually. Luke, thanks. I, I think I understand your question, uh, Ambassador Piper. In terms of the, the kinds of sanctions, the kinds of private companies uh, going as far as to also uh, do things like, I think Luke was referencing Visa and MasterCard there, and that this all just plays into Putin's bigger argument that the West basically hates you and is targeting you. Can that backfire on the West? Yeah. Yeah. I, this, I think, would be useful for maybe President Biden, but for other Western leaders to try to find a way using maybe social media to address messages to the Russian people and say, look, we understand that you are suffering because of this, but this is because of your leadership's war against Ukraine. Um, and I do feel some empathy for the Russian people who are going to suffer as a result of these sanctions. Uh, but then I also look and see what the Ukrainian people are going through. Uh, you know, I, I talked to a former colleague at the embassy uh, about four days ago. You know, she lives in Kyiv. Uh, she's evacuated her daughter and two grandkids children to the western part of the country, but she's still there in Kyiv, you know, 10 air raid sirens over the course of the previous night. There are lots of Ukrainians who are now spending their nights in bomb, in bomb shelters or in subways or in basements, and there are Ukrainians being killed. So I, I have some empathy for the Russians, but look at what their country is doing to Ukraine. Yes. You, as we talked about earlier, we're talking about how Putin and his inner circle really misunderstood the degree to which Ukrainians do not consider themselves as one people with Russia, as Putin has always said. I, you would assume that once, I mean, if he really believed that, <laughs> and once he realized that that was not the case when he entered 
Ukraine uh, that his that he had badly miscalculated that he would in some respect then readjust but what he's doing it appears is doubling down with that realization do you have any insight into into why that would be the case yeah, it, it's hard for me to psychoanalyze Vladimir Putin yes. from this distance. And I mean, the last time I saw him personally when I was still in the U.S. government was back in 2002 or 2003. But I do think he's changed in some ways in the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, he's always been one who sort of calculates the risk and the cost on one hand and the possible gains on the other hand. But when it comes to Ukraine he seems to be much more emotional, even angry. And I wonder if that has clouded his judgment. A second thing I have to wonder about is, uh, he always operated in a very tight circle. And one of the concerns analysts had was, is he in an echo chamber? But it's been extraordinarily tight over the past two years. He seems to be very paranoid about uh, COVID. And so an already small group of people has become much smaller. And I worry he's not getting a wide range of views. a a different policy choice on his part. On a a similar note, this listener asks, does the ambassador think the severity of sanctions might backfire? Will Putin view the sanctions as an act of war? He's already described this as such. And they certainly, as strong as they've been, have not appeared to work to the extent that they're actually causing him to pull back or withdraw. Well, I I think the sanctions have just begun and they are going to inflict severe economic pain on Russia. And they have a chance. I'm not sure that the sanctions by themselves will coerce them to leave Ukraine, Uh, but they will be a signal that this kind of behavior is unacceptable uh, and it could deter him from doing something more that could even be worse in the future. Uh, So I I do believe that the sanctions are worth applying. I, I think, It's the 21st century. This is Europe. Uh, It looks like within a number of days, the Russian army is going to be besieging Kyiv, a city of 3 million people. This is not acceptable behavior. And yes, we are not prepared to go to war with Russia over this, but we should be prepared to do things that communicate very clearly to the Russian leadership and to Russia that this is not the kind of things that the civilized world is going to just stand by and watch. Do you see any scenario in which NATO would send troops into Ukraine? You said no on the no-fly zone. Yeah, I think it's it's very hard to see that because uh, that then makes this basically a broad NATO-Russia fight. And I'm not sure also if NATO forces went into Ukraine, it would feed this rather paranoid fantasy fear that seem to drive Putin, that the West and Ukraine together are out to get him. And my guess is that NATO entry into the war on Ukraine's side would make this a much more existential war for Putin from Putin's perspective. You know, it was a, a war that he could not lose under any circumstances. He could not claim victory and just leave. He would have to fight it to the end. And that would be bad for NATO, but I think it would also make a horrible situation, perhaps even worse for the Ukrainians, because they would be the battleground. Let me go to caller Christina in San Francisco. Hi, Christina. Hi there. What would you like Um, to share? I'm a former war refugee from Yugoslavia, and uh, if NATO did not intervene 
when they did, my family and I would be dead. My question for the ambassador is, how many more war crimes or mass graves or rape camps do we wait for until there is action? And why there is such a high threshold for human pain and suffering until we take that action. The argument that we're not ready for war is incorrect because with our defense budget, we're always ready for war. Christina, thanks. Ambassador Pfeiffer. Yeah, I, I agree. We have the defense capabilities. We are ready for war, you know, but it is a war that you really want to have. Uh, again, uh, this is horrible for Ukraine. I, I am glad to see, and I think the West should be doing more in terms of providing all of the military assistance and the defensive weapons that we can to enable the Ukrainians to defend themselves. But again, US or NATO entry into this war opens up a Pandora's box that again is going to be potentially, you're talking about World War III, but I think also though perhaps makes this conflict even worse for Ukraine because of the way that Vladimir Putin would then see it. Do you agree with analysts who say that China is really the only nation that could get Russia to to withdraw, to pull back? Yeah, I'm not sure if the Chinese could succeed in that, but but certainly one of the things that Mr. Putin counts on, particularly now that he has been so badly isolated from the West, is this connection to China. And the Chinese seem to be fairly nervous about some of the things that Putin is doing. Uh, it would be a good thing with the Chinese to actually try to use their influence. At the end of the day, though, I'm not sure whether they could succeed on that. But so far, there does not seem to be any open indication that the Chinese are using the influence that they might have with Putin to try to end this. I'm going to see if I can reconnect with Galena Maestrick one more time. Galena, are you with us? I know you are in Lviv right now and the connection is, uh, is rough. Yeah. Yes, I hear you. <laughs> yes. So one of the things Thank that I, I know you wanted the West to understand is the unfolding humanitarian crisis and the needs that Ukraine will have. Can you say a little bit about what that looks like? Uh, because of uh, because of our project activities, we are an organization who is very involved in their project implementation in Ukraine. We, are, we have connections with the different regions of Ukraine. The first need is medications. And we already have uh, this list of medications uh, that is very important. Uh, first of all, it's maternity uh, and also children's needs. I mean, newborns and, and children's, uh, which we, and children which are more than, than newborns. Uh, um, as I know, UN system has such kind of uh, uh, packages. As I know, I, I connect today with and my friend in Brussels also with uh, UN agencies. The problem is logistics. Uh, logistics, how to deliver this for uh, regions which suffer mostly. I yes. mean, Sumer Kharkiv, uh, 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 Kiev, and also Kherson, I mean, south of Ukraine, which is now under troops, and we have a lot of humanitarian uh, needs there. Yes. Galina, I'm so sorry, but the con the connection continues to worsen. I cannot thank you enough for trying to join us and for trying to send this message. And essentially, Ambassador Pfeiffer, I think what Galina Maestruk is also talking about is the extent to which this is a, a humanitarian 
commitment that Western nations are going to need to make for the long haul? Do you think that we have that capacity? I believe that the West has both the capacity and the will to do it. So there will be a significant humanitarian assistance uh, flowing into uh, Ukrainians, both uh, governmental and non-governmental. I mean, there's a variety of places now that your viewers can find uh, on the internet for contributions to help uh, humanitarian operations for uh, Ukrainians. But the harder question is, how do we get this assistance to places like Mariupol, which has now been encircled by Russian forces, uh, or other cities that are occupied or encircled? You know, there have been at least, I think, three days now we've heard about the possibility of humanitarian quarters that would allow people to exit the city and food and medical supplies to flow in. And in each case, it looks like at the end of the day, the Russians were not prepared to create the conditions necessary. Uh, I think in one case, they said, well, they, they can leave, but the people would have to go not to the West or to Western Ukraine, but the people would have to go to Russia. And, and so the Ukrainians are feeling that these discussions with humanitarian about humanitarian quarters with the Russians uh, have not uh, borne out uh, in the reality that they were hoping for. Stephen Pfeiffer, former ambassador to Ukraine, Glina Maestruk, a doctor in Ukraine. This is a fundraising period for KQED and for many public radio stations. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And let's go to some more of your calls and questions. Asa in Oakland. Am I saying your name right there? Asa. Asa, thanks so much for joining us, Asa. What would you like to say? Sure. I have perhaps a naive question, but dating back to Ronald Reagan, George Bush, and Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton, why couldn't an olive branch have been extended and Russia included into a redefined and probably renamed NATO? I felt the current situation might have been avoided if the end of the Cold War was repurposed as an opportunity for real peace and integration and not a new adversarial relationship. Was this opportunity lost in the Bosnia-Serbia conflict? A message of peace should be going out to the Russian people, but I don't see a real message of peace mm. except from President Zelensky. Isa, thanks. thanks. Ambassador Pfeiffer, your response? Well, this goes back to the history. I mean, I was actually uh, serving at the, uh, on the National Security Council in the 1990s when President Clinton moved forward both on enlarging NATO but also trying to shape a cooperative NATO-Russia relationship, the idea being that we could make the relationship so cooperative the Russians would not care about enlargement because they would see NATO as a security partner. And it was interesting, one time in 1995 or 1996, in 1995, uh, President Clinton asked us, what do I say if then Russian President Boris Yeltsin says, I want to join NATO? And the answer was, you know, if Russia is prepared to meet the requirements of NATO, which are not just about military reform, but they were also about having an established democracy, a market economy, respect for human rights, civil control over both the military and the, and the security services, then the answer would be yes. Uh, but I think in, in the 1990s, the Russians came to the conclusion that really to join NATO, their perception of the NATO was the United States and everybody else. They didn't want to be a part of everybody else. So they worked on this NATO-Russia relationship. But at the end, um, they were only really committed to it in a half-hearted way. Uh, we tried, for example, in 1997, we told the Russians that if NATO, when, as NATO enlarges, it would not permanently station substantial combat forces on the territory of new members. There were no NATO ground forces in places like Poland or Romania or the Baltic states 
prior to 2014. What changed that was the request from those countries after the Russians used military force to seize Crimea and then provoke a conflict in Donbass, which in eight years claimed 14,000 lives. Let me see if I can squeeze in Susan from Palo Alto. Hi, Susan. Quickly, please. Hi. Um, can you hear me okay? I can. Go right ahead. Um, my question for the ambassador is um, when you speak of uh, when when people ask the question, why won't we help more? When will we help more? And you say, well, we 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 don't want to go down that road. Why doesn't anybody say the obvious, which is if we went down that road, we could very well likely go into nuclear war, chemical warfare, biological warfare? Because I don't think people really understand what it Susan, thanks. Ambassador Pfeiffer? Well, no, I think that is ultimately the one of the reasons why the United States and NATO have said we are not prepared to go to war directly with Russia, is the question is where does that war lead? Uh, certainly major conventional operations, but perhaps, we, you are, but perhaps you also get a nuclear element into it. And that's why I believe that there's that very strong red line that uh, the West is staying on one side of. Well, Ambassador Piper, thank you for helping us understand all that is happening in the world in terms of the way that it's handling this unfolding tragedy in Ukraine. Stephen Pfeiffer, former ambassador to Ukraine, you've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.